Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Michael Patrick Lynch. Taking stock of our fragmented political landscape, this celebrated philosopher and TED speaker argues that we are becoming a culture of dogmatic know-it-alls. The spread of what Lynch calls epistemic arrogance makes us think we have nothing to learn from one another, rewards an unbending commitment to one's own opinions, and glorifies defensive rejection of those who are different. Synthesizing years of research, Lynch offers a philosophical perspective on this crisis of arrogance in the age of the internet. Embracing and thought-provoking work, his new book, Know-It-All Society, holds up a mirror to American culture and reveals the sources of our fragmentation to launch a powerful argument for the value of humility. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Michael Patrick Lynch. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, you've written an excellent book, Know It All Society, and the subtitle is Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. And immediately upon looking at the cover, you're like, why would you write this? This isn't timely. You look around cable <laughs> news. Where's the truth? Where's the arrogance? <laughs> is this like, as a philosopher, is it like the Book of Esther? Perhaps you were raised up for such a time as this, you know, like, hey, this is my moment in the sun. It's sad that it has to be such a dark one, but... Well, it is true that, uh, I mean, <laughs> first, when I first told people uh, about four or five years ago that I was starting to think about concepts like intellectual humility and arrogance and thinking that they were connected to politics, at the time, back in those days, which we can barely remember through the myths, right, when the world was different, uh, people were often surprised that I would be think see a connection between concepts like arrogance and truth. And uh, nowadays, I tell people, or, you know, the book has come out, and I was telling people, you know, just recently what, what it's about. Um, people are like, huh, the reaction that you just had, how did you uh, know that that I didn't know, but I, I, I think it's, as you already suggested, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad in a way that somebody who's works on truth for a living and worries about skepticism about truth is finding the business to be booming. <laughs> There's a great book I love, and I, I almost think it should be like mandatory reading for undergraduates before they speak in class. It's by a retired Princeton philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, and it's called All On right. Bullshit. Yeah, great book. And the first sentence is one of those sentences I wish I could have written. One of the most salient features of our culture is that there is so much bullshit. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and he talks about how the liar is actually, he looks, I think he's quoting Augustine, how the liar has acquires some virtue by just having to have enough knowledge of the truth to make sure you don't tell it. But the bullshitter doesn't have that moral development because they don't care what they're saying. Like if it corresponds to the truth, okay. If it doesn't, that's fine. And he, he gets on like an unreflectiveness that you think is sort of at the base of all of our problems, whether there's civility, intolerance, the arrogance. Right. It's, it's not just, hey, be more civil or let's be nicer. 
and kinder or speak slower, that you think this is actually a matter of conviction and, and belief and how we come to know things and and understand things and, and have our convictions shaped. And you think we need to go back to that core, right, to get at why there is so much indifference to the truth in our wider culture. I think that's right. Um, I think, you know, focusing on civility, I have nothing against civility. I think it's important to be civil, um, except, you know, sometimes the word civil can be misused. To I'm sort sure of some of your best friends are civil. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> occasionally, <laughs> occasionally. Yeah. But, uh, you know, really, uh, civility is about behavior. And one of the things that I think we need to do is look past just the behavior and look at our psychology and philosophical frameworks that uh, are often the causes uh, for how we behave. That is, the ideas we have and the attitudes that we have towards those ideas, including our own ideas. And I think the attitude that is often overlooked but increasingly dominant in our relationship, dominating our political relationships to each other, is the, the uh the attitude of what I call intellectual arrogance, which at, at root is the attitude of thinking that your worldview is not open to improvement by the evidence and experience of other people. And when you actually have that attitude, and it's, you know, it's not really a rational attitude because everybody's views can improve, um, it's at root uh, – involving a sort of distortion towards truth. And one of the ways that arrogance can involve this distortion is that it can it can cause you to start to think that, well, like the bullshitter, that, well, what really matters is that I'm saying this thing or I'm believing this thing. What matters is the fact that my convictions are my convictions or even darker, our convictions, my tribe's convictions are my tribe's convictions. And truth is really not relevant. That's, yeah, you, that's sort of related to the attitude of the bullshitter. Yeah, you begin with the book with, you know, the ancient perennial enemy of bullshit, Socrates, and, and talking about in the Republic, this this great dialogue, like, you know, what, what ought we believe, you know, about about reality and, and this kind of, you know, him, him building on this pre-Socratic tradition that's thinking, hey, look, we could do better than the, like, you know, Homeric myths and these deities that are just us behaving badly, that, that sort of tribal projections. Like, if we thought about reality and metaphysics, you know, maybe what is could tell us the connections to what ought to be. And Socrates comes at the climax, kind of at the high point of that tradition. You know, it, really, we're critical inquiry and the connection between metaphysics, what's real and what we ought to do, like ethics, it becomes really uh, clear if he points that out. It seems like today we're like, hey, give us the tribal gods, man. <laughs> Put right. them on cable TV. And it seems like we're, it's sort of like we're rejecting that Socratic tradition of, of connecting reality to ethics and just saying, hey, give us the old tribal gods. Dress up Homer on cable TV. And we'd rather do that. And, and that's more satisfying. That's a really great point. I think one of the things that uh, is really very pervasive in our contemporary culture is um, not just sort of distortions about truth, but actually confusion uh, about reality and it and our relation to it. I mean, right now, I think, you know, it's, it comes as a surprise to no one that people are, are 
are confused about what's real and what's virtual because much of our life is now, you know, uh, being navigated online. And what reality, what constitutes reality in our digitally infused life is more complicated than ever. Yeah, we technologize our intimacy and intimize our technology, right? Exactly. So, so like we talk to people who are FaceTime, people have sexual encounters online. Right. And, and we intimize our technology. Hello, Michael. What, what can I do for you today? It, it creates this weird uh, deception, right? It, it does. And it, and, and, and it creates a very, you know, a set of unsettled, uh, a, a, a type of unsettledness, an unsettledness about the sort of norms that we should use to, uh, uh, govern our relationships online, but it also creates just an unsettledness about what is real and what is not. And so as a result, it's very easy for uh, the old tribal gods, as you put it, to find some uh, to, to be able to appeal to to people who are in that unsettled state. Because one of the things that I think marks us as human beings, and this is just, I think, a, a fact about human psychology, is when we are feeling unsettled, when we are starting to think, what is real, what is not, how do I know? In those cases where, uh, in those situations, human beings are prone not to often withdraw or to be more reflective, but our first gut reaction is to actually puff ourselves up and to look to those who declare that they know, they have the secret, they can point the way to reality. And even if we come to think that, you know, well, maybe they're really not all that worried with reality at all, at least we think they're confident. At least they're giving us a path. And that, I think, can lead us to, uh, you know, sort of uh, encourages some of our worst features as human beings and encourages this type of tribal arrogance that I think is shooting through political culture right now. One of the things that I found so compelling about your book was that the psychological and sociological kind of analysis you bring in, in addition to philosophical reflection. And, you know, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's this concept of idolatry, right? And the, the idea is that anytime you're seeking from some created good, what the creator is, you know, the source of it, you're, it's, you're making it an idol, you're worshiping something that's finite. And it seems like you talk about how ideas or do so much identity work. You have a belief or an idea, and then it becomes a conviction. You have this great phase, and that's self-expanding. It makes a bigger self. You have a grander story. And so it seems like at the heart is something that the Judeo-Christian tradition would call idolatry. When ideas, when beliefs, convictions are doing all this identity work, such that they make you who you are, more than who loves you or your family or, or, or the deepest, all these things that are so finite and ought to be able to be critically reflect on they can't be because they're you're in an act of worship to them they're giving you so much it's hard to 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 be critical about them right exactly yeah i think you know often we uh sort of are not reflective enough about what our, our convictions uh actually are not just their content but as you're pointing out the role they play in our lives um i mean it's important to have conviction i'm i think that uh as i i like to say an apathetic electorate is no electorate at all. So it's absolutely important that in democracy, we encourage people to have convictions. But there's also a danger in conviction because conviction is what carries us forth to dogma and to zeal. And so one really important thing is just what a conviction is. I think it's not just a deeply held belief. After all, you know, uh, I, I'm 
I have a deeply held belief that two plus two equals four, but that's not what I would call a conviction of mine. A conviction, as you pointed out, is something that I think reflects your self-identity, which is not just what kind of person you are, but more importantly, what kind of person you aspire to be, even if you're not really that. So a conviction reflects that I sort of idealized identity that you have. Um, and that, uh, to talk about Harry Frankfurt, by the way, since we mentioned him before, it reflects what he would call our second-order desires. But that aside, the point here of, of that analysis is, is it helps us understand why it is that attacks on our conviction feel like attacks on ourselves, because in a very real sense, they are. And when we start to allow um, as neat, well, let me back up a little bit and just say that, you know, one of the things that I, I learned from Nietzsche, I think a philosopher, as I say in the book, who thought more deeply about convictions than a lot of other philosophers have ever done. One of the things that Nietzsche really taught me is that something can become a matter of conviction, uh, and it can start out as a mere opinion or a belief yeah, about it. a you matter this, of fact. Right. You go ahead. great quote. You say that. All convictions are convictions because they once weren't. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. Exactly, exactly. And what he's trying to get at here is that, you know, uh, what becomes part of your self-identity uh, isn't always that. It starts out as something else. It starts out as a passing speculation or a belief or an opinion. And we see that and then becomes, you know, sort of hardened into rock-hard conviction as something that reflects who you aspire to be. It's through the building of conviction that we build our self-identities. Again, that's an important human process, but it's something we need to do with care and not blindly, which is unfortunately the way that we often tend to, to do it. And I think the ways in which our political ideologies and our technologies right now are interacting is causing a lot of people to sort of form their, uh, inform their convictions blindly and to do so in a way that's just expanding their ego and causing this confusion between ego and truth that I mentioned I talked about. Uh, or alluded to before when I was talking about arrogance. And this is so challenging in modern liberal society, right? Because if you're in pre-modern society, the average person doesn't have to do as much thinking because you've got professional thinkers and tradition makers and or, or people that steward the tradition. And so, okay, you don't have to be super reflective because we've got traditions. But in a, in a in a society where we say the citizen really shapes citizenry really shapes the contours of our culture through democratic practice. There, it, we are the tradition bearers, right? Like we can't just outsource it to the philosopher king or, or to the priest or to, or to the Confucian literati. I mean, we're it. Right. I think that the, so I, I agree with that, that there is a difference in the way that you just put your finger on between uh, contemporary society and, you know, more traditionally based pre-modern societies in how convictions are formed. And you're right that part of that rests in the sort of linear authority of, um, uh, of pre-modern or many pre-modern societies, uh, where convictions were passed down or given to you, uh, and therefore your self-identity was handed because the trauma sort of you know was was hierarchical perhaps in how it, it it navigated these things but there is one similarity and i think that is important to keep in mind when we there's a sense in which we we tell ourselves that online that we're sort of you know we're crafting our identities ourselves and in some ways of course we are we're curating ourselves online you know when we're using facebook and and twitter and 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 the like we're we're curating how people see us 
also, of course, we're being curated. We're being uh, uh, given uh, some of our convictions by those whom we interact with. And sometimes we are not – often I think people aren't aware of that, that our self-identities nowadays are – you know, a self-identity, the person we aspire to be, could be understood as a narrative, as a story, the type of story. And who is it written by? Well, it's not just written by ourselves. It's also written by the uh, by the wider culture in which we we live. And it so there's still lines of authority, lines of influence. It's just they're more diffuse and often hidden. The spider webs of that authority and the, the, that storytelling uh, are often invisible to our view, but they're still there. Yeah, and you talk about how with social media, it's it, it you know it's not like confirmation bias and things like that were didn't exist before social media. But the the issue is algorithms that target it so that it you so that it gets into what you how you want to curate and then shapes that in a way that like it, it where there's no sort of you think about like evolutionarily right like total randomness means nothing you know a, a, a little randomness helps things along you know uh, without any randomness you get inbred stagnation uh, there, but there's not it, those those algorithms aren't very random they, they they know what you want and they give it to you and mo- many people you point out are sharing things without even reading them. And, and, and when you're sharing stuff, you're just sharing emotions. I mean, you talk about expressivism, this like 20th century philosophy that says, hey, uh, really, moral convictions are just telling your feelings. Like saying murder is wrong is like saying pepperoni pizza is awesome and pineapple has no place on a pizza. Like, <laughs> That, exactly. that, that this becomes the expressivist dream, right? Because you could just emote, 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 emote. <laughs> exactly. That's right. I mean, I think I, I'm not an expressivist about uh, moral judgment, but I do think that if you, per se, in general, but I do think that a lot of the communicative acts that we engage in on online are actually an expressivist dream. They are, as you just articulated, a lot of what we're doing online is not we is not what we think it is. We're not uh, when we're sharing news items real or fake uh, to our friends and followers, we think we're, you know, saying, hmm, well, this is an important piece of information and you should take a look at it. And uh, we're engaging in acts of reflective testimony. In fact, what we're really often doing is we're expressing our outrage or emotion uh, uh, and often tribal emotions, outrage being one of those things. And the evidence for that, as you just noted, is, is, you know, studies that are coming out showing, surprise, surprise, that almost the very few people that share anything online ever read what they're sharing. And of course, how we react to our, uh, the things we share are itself by the, by design, by the digital platforms that we engage in, are, we use, by design, our reaction Actions are 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 mostly emotional. After all, on Facebook, we're prompted to first respond to any post with uh, an emoji. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? Yeah, you, you talk about in the book. You're like, what if we didn't have emoticons and we had to respond with justifiable by the evidence, not justifiable right. or false? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I actually pose that. Um, this is why philosophers don't invent things like Facebook. Right? Exactly. This is why. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I posed that uh, true story to a bunch of uh, um, executives from uh, certain well-known uh, digital giants and, uh, over drinks one 
uh, night. And they thought that was, again, the idea was, well, you know, instead of, you know, uh, happy face, adverbum face, and, you know, uh, sad face and so forth, we could choose between justified uh, by the evidence, not justified by the evidence, or need more information. And they thought that was the funniest thing since they kept, you know, they were like, say it again, say it again. It was so funny, right? You're going to get like, court. That guy get- is funny. And You're going to get corporate stand-up gigs. You put up a philosopher. Exactly, exactly. Put up the philosopher. And you know, the thing is, though, is what I came to realize, and this relates to the point about expressivism, what I came to realize is that they were right to, to, to find me uh, obviously naive, but also what they knew and what I think I – I, I agree with now is that, of course, if we did that on our platforms, the economy of those platforms would cause us to start treating those buttons uh, as emotionally. We would start using justified by the evidence, not to mean that, but to mean, yay, this. And that's that, I think, is what shows that the, the problem here is not going to be fixed by a simple redesign. The problems that we're talking about are not just technological problems. They're human problems. And to change them, we're going to have to change our attitudes. We're going to have to start thinking about how we engage with one another and be more reflective. That's an, you know, that's a sort of idealized thing that a philosopher says. But I am a philosopher and, you know, I don't apologize for wanting us to be different and better as human beings. So I have a personal maxim in my life. If if Nietzsche and Augustine agree on it, it must be true. And you have this I mean, other things are good, but and you have this 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 quote by Hume in the book that Nietzsche and Augustine I'm sure would both agree with. That reason can tell us how to get someplace, but it can't tell us where to go. We're creatures of the heart. I mean, Woody Allen, right? The heart wants what it wants. Right. And so we, what does that Jeff Goldblum's character say in The Big Chill? A human being can get through a day without food or sex, but we can't get through a day without a good rationalization. So we're not, right. we're less rational animals than rationalizing animals a lot of the time. And so much of your book is talking about, right, the emotional substructure, you know, and, and, and to what we think is, is rationality and deliberation. And oftentimes uh, we're, we're, we're so, we almost have to, I mean, we know these desires and yet we have to sort of suppress, we have to sort of uh, tell a different story about them so we can seem like we're rational, not rationalizing, right? Which is very often what we are. Reasons just following behind, helping us tell the story of what our, our heart, where our heart wants us to go. Yeah, that's that that uh, the understanding the role. What Hume was really great at was understanding the role that emotions play in human life, and getting us to see that um, uh, that we often downplay that role in just the way that we were talking about before. And that's true online and off. Uh, it's true when we're talking about former convictions. Um, we we often fail to realize that the convictions we form, the tribes that we aspire to be part of, we do those things because they give us some feeling of security. Uh, it's also why we end up being arrogant, why we th- we act like know-it-alls, why we think that our tribe is superior to every other tribe, and uh, why that can sometimes lead us down very dark paths towards things like n- – white supremacism and nationalism and terrible things like that because we need to understand that those sorts of narratives that are forming convictions are also uh, 
pulling out things that people feel and want to feel. They want to feel secure. They want to feel safe. And they are frightened. And these are human things. I think that, um, you know, it's also true, though, and here I disagree with Hume a little bit, is that I think that we can mitigate this fact, these factors. We can, in fact, use our reflective abilities in the way that Socrates hoped to, to, uh, temper our, uh, sheer emotional impulses and to temper our insecurities. Uh, it's not perfect. We're never going to be able to just use reason alone. There, Plato thought that reason was in charge. Um, Hume thought that, uh, that reason was in fact the slave of the passions and it was the emotions that were in charge. My own view is that, uh, you know, there's neither slave nor master here. Reason and emotion are the sorts of things that we have to, unfortunately, it's our lot in life as humans. <laughs> we're sort of a big psychological mess and we have to try as best we can to uh, mitigate our implicit biases and prejudices and our emotional, our, our blind emotions with reflection. Uh, and we've got to also at the same time use our emotions sometimes as guides to what's important in life. Our natural sympathies, as Hume would say, our feelings towards each other as humans, as humans. Another Scotsman, although, uh, 19th century Scotsman, Thomas Chalmers, uh, he has this great little sermon he was a philosopher and a minister he had the expulsive expulsive power of a new affection he says the ascendant power of a second affection will do what no exposition however forcible of the folly and worthlessness of the first could ever effectuate i think he means there like if you're going to give up something you love it has to be because you love something else more i wonder if if it's that if part of the it's not reason taking over over emotion but it's it's the affection of a, a larger truth that's bigger that that allows reason to go someplace bigger and to be more to actually i wonder if it's a, it's a passion for mystery for a, a truth that is bigger than ourselves that actually gets reason to function more critically that's an interesting thought i mean i think that uh it's certainly the case that in order to think critically we've got to uh have not not be in an attitude of arrogance but in in one of uh what i call in the book intellectual humility the idea that uh, you see your worldview is open to uh, some improvement, some epistemic improvement by the evidence and by the world beyond yourself, beyond your ego. Uh, that attitude is, is a, I think, a precondition to thinking critically. And it's very much connected to this idea that the truth, the truth and facts are independent, uh, of our whims and desires and prejudices that the, that there is something that we're responsive to out in the world. And I think, uh, beyond ourselves. And I think that idea, the idea that, um, uh, truth isn't a creature of our ego, uh, is an idea that, uh, is something that as Bertrand, I note that, you know, Bertrand Russell, Hannah Arendt, uh, and many other philosophers have often thought is, an idea and an ideal that we need to really remember if we're going to, uh, you know, fight the forces of dogmatism and often tyranny. You talk about early in the book, two things that are things that are good, uh, you know, and yet when they get into groupthink and they can take over and be perverted, Con uh, confidence and fear of ignorance. You talk about confidence. We tell people, oh, look how confident that person is. We admire right. them. 
and yet usually it's for grounded confidence, right? Right. Uh, and, and we tell people, you know, it, it, it's good to not be ignorant. It's good to study. Good to, and yet we also somehow have this deep admiration for people who can say, I, "I'm not sure about that." You know, so it's, right. it's it's this weird thing that these two things that that are values we want to instill in children and stuff can become. It's it's like uh, it's like uh, a a defense mechanism that becomes an autoimmune disease, right? Right. Because it that it, 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 this sort of confidence often it, it, this this twin pairing in the tribe of confidence and desire to look confident and the desire to not look ignorant often when it gets into the tribal kind of you know cocktail shaker it creates exactly the the thing you're trying to fight against in the book right this intellectual arrogance right which which fuels the us not just us versus them but us over them power politics Exactly. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, and the, these are parts of the, the, you know, the social, psychosocial forces that are, that, that are, are acting on us and creating that sort of know-it-all society. And exactly as you said, I think that we often, as, as we, as human beings, we, we want to come off as knowing what we're talking about. And that's, that's because we get rewards for that. It's socially rewarding. People, uh, are more inclined to, to, to follow people who look like they know what they're talking about and of course we want them to really know what they're talking about we want the airplane airline pilot to really know how to fly the plane we want our surgeon to really know <laughs> how to how to conduct uh, uh you know uh surgery but i think that um what often happens is because we desire uh we desire this confidence socially. When when we don't have it, we try to replace it with this, you know, this this uh, pale imitation, uh, uh, which is arrogance. And I think a lot of people could do. It, it is easy to fall into confusing the two. And then, of course, as you said, we also, of course, are very afraid of making mistakes because we don't get promoted for making mistakes. We don't get rewarded for making mistakes. Uh, so. Though that combination is a pretty toxic combination, it ends up encouraging us to want to say that we know even when we don't know, and it, you know that's the that's the charm of arrogance, which is that it gives us a feeling of knowledge even when we don't necessarily have knowledge, and a feeling of confidence even when we don't actually are deeply insecure. It's interesting too because you, with this desire for identity expansion and, 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 you know, which tribes often serve in, you know, in, in deleterious ways, but they do it. I mean, you talk about, uh, this researcher from Yale, Dan Cahan, and, and mm -hmm. his research that showed that basically we accept information when it affirms some aspect of our self identity and reject it when we perceive it as threatening that identity. Right. Uh, and, and you say in one sense, this is, this is, practically rational like if our if our, again it's what the heart wants you know if our if the heart wants uh to preserve this kind of story we've made for ourselves that is dependent on certain tribal connections then this is a rational deciding process where we take this piece of it and you 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 say this great have this great analogy where let's say someone is considers this claim that the climate change is hoax is is something that's been perpetuated by billionaire george soros you say, well, I mean, that on itself, accepting that fact may not be a big deal. But what if that means accepting that climate science isn't all skeptical? And then that means, you know, that maybe man is contributing to it. And then, and then that means I can't watch Hannity with my friends or I can't tweet out this. And then it means, right. so all of a sudden one 
fact, I mean, it becomes like a Jenga game, right? Where, right. You know, where every, every, uh, you know, Jenga, the game where you, you, you know, you, you build up all these wood planks and then the person you start, you start pulling them out and the person that loses is the person that pulls out the pl- the plank that topples right. the tower. Exactly. I mean, this because everything, it's like a Jenga game, right? You can't tug on any single fact because it could topple the whole tower. Right. Yeah. So, you know, this is a process that I, I call in the book moral entanglement, uh, that our convictions get become convictions that seem to be about straightforward matters of fact, uh, become morally entangled with the rest of our worldview and can actually end up propping up this whole self-identity or at least becoming a very important part of it. Uh, that is, and our, again, self-identity is the identity we aspire to have. That is, uh, the kind of person we aspire to be. And I think one of the things that's really, really problematic is just this point that you're making, you're making, which is that, uh, beliefs, things that start off as opinions or just straightforward beliefs about matters of fact, about climate change, which after all, whether it's happening or not happening, is really shouldn't, it's an empirical matter. And it really shouldn't be a, it's not a normative matter, uh, on its, on the face of it. It's, uh, the same with, you know, uh, the, the effectiveness and safety of vaccines. That's an empirical matter. And of course, the people who are skeptical about vaccines or skeptical about climate change, they will say, yes, I'm just being scientific. But if you look at how their discourse actually starts to unfold, and actually discourse about these things on actually often on both sides, words like this must be true, must is when used when we're talking about the straightforward empirical world is often a signal that something has become not just a matter of belief and matter of a, an issue over matter of fact, but an issue of conviction. It started to become entangled with the rest of our identity. It's like when Sean Spicer says, that was the biggest crowd ever. Period. Exactly. <laughs> you, don't like, you, don't your, period. You, don't, you don't want your cancer, you know, your, your oncologist saying, this is the diagnosis, period. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because that's, you know, I mean, in our more reflective moments, we know that that is a sort of a crazy thing to think that we can be so confident about the, the nature of the world, which is so big and complicated. And yeah, when people use words like great analogy, when people use words like this, period, uh, or must, as I was saying before, that's a signal. That's a signal that, uh, Reflection has left the room, and conviction and um, possibly dogmatism have entered it. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out 
on the Thank You Roll Call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Press, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You have a great chapter in the book on, it's called Ideologies of Arrogance and, and the American Right, and you're talking about the rise of totalitarianism, and you have this great, you, you, you quote Hannah Arendt and how like oftentimes traditional liberal societies look at authoritarian ones like the Third Reich, and they say, I don't understand these motivations, because... Because oftentimes there's this sort of idea that we're victims and we're marginalized, which makes it sound weak. And then you're also saying, yeah, we're the master race. And and you talk about that doesn't really matter to the authoritarian because you're weaving together a story that makes the people feel legitimate and, and, exactly. and, and makes them feel powerful and important and significant. It involves some scapegoating and it might involve truths that if you put them all out in, in a logic class or, you know, an analytic philosophy equation, they, they might fall apart. But but they're compelling when they're weaved together in a story. And and you you look at sort of the whole status threat and how oftentimes people just on the left didn't get what Trump was doing and, and would reduce it to simple racism or simple this or something. And you said, no, there's a much more complex story here that you have to look at as to why people who maybe some of their moral convictions would, would be unsettled by some of the stuff Trump says and does and yet why they could support him. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think one of the things that um, uh, Hannah Arendt really teaches us is that authoritarian, authoritarian and, uh, and tyrants, uh, rulers, uh, strongmen, uh, what they often know and are effective at is realizing that it's not the content per se of what, of their policies that matters. It's how they say it and the type of narrative that they weave around the psychologies of the people that they're, they're aspiring to lead and rule. Really, I think it, it, it's, it's, this is the tribal version of the sorts of the, the psychological uh, facts that we were talking about earlier, where all of us, right, uh, aspire to be seen as confident and our fear being seen as, as, as wrong or mistaken or undervalued. That, that combination, when it's, when it's, thrown into a sort of tribe at large when a people white people for example in in the United States right now feeling uh uh often i think unjustifiably threatened by people who look different than them or or are are from different sorts of cultures than they're normally aware of um are feeling under threat now that's i think that's a problem. They shouldn't be feeling that way, but they are. And what happens, I think, is that, you know, certain rulers, Trump is a great example of this, uh, realizes that that's what that, that's what's effective to appeal to. That's the thing that we should really, you know, that he can play on and call and spin his narrative about. He can 
he can get people to think that, well, there is a real threat. I'm validating that you're under threat. I'm telling you, you should be worried about caravans and immigrants and people coming across the border as an invasion and all those hateful words that are so insightful that he's been using. Those validate that insecurity, that status threat. And research by uh uh, Diana Mutz and other uh, uh, political science researchers are indicating that a lot of people who voted for Trump will score very high on this kind of status threat, the sense that their culture is somehow under threat. By playing that up, he plays up, of course, the, the attitude of tribal arrogance. Because what he says on the one hand is, yeah, you're right to feel insecure. And then on the other hand, he says, but I have the secret. I know. I alone can fix it. Follow me, and I will regain your rightful place on top of society. And I think that that is a very frightening message to the rest of us, but it can be very validating to to somebody who is in that position I was describing. Yeah, and you say the, the grain of truth to the that might be behind the under threat is this economic conviction that things work for the elites, whatever their party are, party is, and it doesn't work widely. And you say Bernie Sanders tapped into, you know, that fear too. And, and a lot of when people say, well, I don't understand how people went from supporting Sanders to Trump. Yeah. It, it, it's not that hard. I mean, both were addressing this sort of idea that, Hey, th- things are just working for less and less people. I, I mean, one addressed it, uh, with a different kind of populism that was more malevolent. And one did it with a sort of uh, almost appeal to sort of uh, old school, like social democracy kind of values. That, right. Hey, we could, of course. But, but they were both making emotional appeals. Both making emotional appeals and understanding that people were feeling frightened and threatened. And <clears throat> remember that it's what I'm talking about is the feeling of being frightened and threatened, not whether in fact, One's being frightened or threatened. I mean, there, we can debate economics. Uh, I do think income inequality, inequality is a huge thing. And I think Bernie Sanders and others are right to focus on that. But, uh, uh, you know, people can feel threatened and all, for all sorts of reasons, economic reasons and uh, reasons because they are uh, feeling threatened that their race is somehow not as valued or on top of things as it once was, it isn't as culturally dominant. So I think what what I try to argue in the book is that there's been this big debate on the left whether you know Trump won because of economics insecurity or racial insecurity and what I want to say is that's a false that's a false choice because really the the, the underlying word that's important there is insecurity the insecurity is what causes people to react in this incredibly arrogant way and when somebody like Trump Right. What Trump did that Sanders didn't do is he played us up that arrogance. He plays up the idea that actually he tells people, don't be insecure because you, us, we are superior. We are actually uh, the best uh, and we're going to be great again. Uh, all those phrases are phrases tailored to talk about insecurity and tailored to promote arrogance. Yeah, and you're an equal opportunity offender because the next chapter is called Liberalism and the Philosophy of Identity Politics, where you talk about liberal arrogance and, and, that, and the perception of that. And you, know, you think of like what good marriage counselors tell people, right? If one of us has a communication problem, there's a communication problem. Or, or don't say somebody's not feeling this way. I mean, they, they, you know, they're, whether or not the facts fit 
you know, what the, the feelings are sort of value neutral in some sense, or, or at least, you know, we need to talk about them. And so often, you know, this feeling of insecurity it can almost be dismissed, right? Which there's nothing that makes people more pissed off than telling them that, that they're not feeling that. Or they, you know? right. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's interesting that, that, the, that liberals can tend to be contemptuous of, of, of folks who they view as outside of the, the inner circle, right? You know, the, the inner ring where the truth is. Right. You know, and uh, speaking as a liberal, I, I, I'm writing that chapter partly out of my own experience of having just those feelings, struggling with those feelings of contempt. Because after all, you know, when, when you're, you're looking at, you know, the rise of, of, of Nazi, Nazism, uh, in, in the United States, um, it's hard to say, be sympathetic to the feelings of a Nazi, right? It's just, it's really hard. And in fact, it feels sort of, hey, icky. there's good people feels, on both sides. Exactly. <laughs> I just think a good. I just assume when I see a group of people with swastikas that they're not there are not many good people in there. I just find another protest. Right. <laughs> I, I, I assume that those symbols are not symbols that a lot of decent people just take no, up indeed, for exactly. But the, the underlying point is exactly right. As hard as it is, you know, I'm not interested in validating the feelings of Nazis. But what I am interested in is understanding. Uh, why it is that people are feeling a certain way. And I think what sometimes you're right that I think uh, uh, we on the left or, or people like myself on the left who really do themselves a grave disservice by focusing on whether the feelings are justified or not, which is, of course, important, right? And um, dismissing the evidence that's being brought, you know, to say, well, I'm feeling insecure for this reason, and not first validating the insecurity itself, validating the feeling of insecurity. I also think that we, you know, the real, I think, in that chapter, what I try to uh, argue is that, you know, a lot of people on on the right and on the left will say, well, you know, the problems with uh, with uh, liberalism and progressives right now is that they're too into identity politics, and that's a problem. For myself, I think that that's a mistake. That's a red herring because while they're – first of all, identity politics means lots of different things. And yeah, secondly you – talk, You talk about the difference yeah. between the politics of recognition. Right. It just says, hey, look, there are a bunch of different – interest groups people groups in in a pluralistic society and sometimes there are groups that are oppressed systemically and so to identify a group and 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 the fact that they have a sort of unique window on how the system works that's legitimate and this it's it's a part an old grand tradition of the politics of recognition exactly. but there's a difference when it kind of becomes it it, it spins off into a, a, a sort of a, a different extreme than that right yeah. So the, the 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 so that's the politics of recognition is I think the original meaning of the term identity politics insofar as there is such a thing as an original meaning to a term like that. On the other hand, uh, but the uh, the the politics of recognition is unfortunately not what a lot of people when they're criticizing identity politics are thinking of. They're mixing it up with a different sort of tradition, a darker tradition, a tradition that goes back even <laughs> that's much older than the politics of recognition, and that's the politics of tribalism, the attitude that my identity, my self-identity, that is the kind of people we are, they uh, they are to be protected at all costs. And politics is really about, um, well, it's really war by, uh, by other means. It's us against them and us over them, as you were saying 
earlier. So I think that sort of politics is unfortunately has been uh, sometimes unwittingly encouraged by certain philosophical views on the left. Um, and that, but importantly, the po- people who have advocated politics of recognition, including many famous feminist philosophers, did not advocate explicitly, in fact, as I try to argue in the book, explicitly uh, try to distance themselves from tribal politics. So I think it's deeply ironic that often <clears throat> critics uh, will, again, on the left and the right, will con- confuse the, I think, perfectly democratic and actually super important politics of recognition with the politics of tribalism. You know, that said, uh, I also, you know, I think the getting back to the point about, you know, progressive arrogance. I think it's not so the politics of recognition, identity politics isn't really the problem. The problem is simpler, uh at least the problem that I I reflected on in myself and my own um uh political advocacy. The problem is often on the left we start to believe our own rhetoric and take ourselves as the rationality brand. Um, and, you know, of course, when you're, when you're arguing against Nazis and, 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 you know, more wild-eyed, uh, nationalists, that's easy to do. And unfortunately, that's a huge problem in our country right now. It is the problem. But, uh, it's easy to say to yourself, well, you know, look, we respect facts and the people who are denying climate change are just, you know, people that are, that don't understand, uh, facts and evidence. Well, it's true that often the people that are denying climate change don't understand uh, the evidence, haven't looked at the facts. In fact, I think it's generally almost always true. On the other hand, however, it's a, it's a grave mistake to start to think that you, that is me as a progressive, is somehow above implicit bias, is above prejudice, is above the sort of blind categorizing of, you know, for example, all all people who own guns to you know, being white nationalist or that everybody who opposes abortion is also somebody that owns a gun. That may be true. Statistically, that there are overlaps between those groups. But, you know, we as liberals tend to lump conservatives together in the same way they lump us together. That's a mistake, no matter which side you're on. The problem is that we on the left often say to ourselves, we're the were the politics of rationality, were the reasonable ones. And once you start adopting that as a brand, it becomes more a matter of tribal identity and less actually what it aspires to be, which is, um, you know, a politics that is uh, inclusive and uh, embodying intellectual humility. I th- there was this study, this poll that came out, I think from the Common Values Project or something, that it was talking about just how the people on the that are the most politically informed, right, are engaged. They're consuming a lot of news, uh, especially like cable news and things like that. They are the people that misunderstand the people on the other side the most. Uh, and actually, the people that just watch mainstream media, like the nightly news, they're actually the least misinformed. <laughs> but but they said that it's interesting that education uh, doesn't clear this up for Republicans, right? A Republican that gets two two graduate degrees will have sort of just as many misconstrued views about Democrats. But for Democrats, education makes it worse. <laughs> that the more degrees they get, the least they the less they understand the other side, and the more extreme they view the normal members of the other party yeah you know um i don't want to announce on that research because i'm not uh well i've I've heard of it i haven't studied it in detail but one of the things that i i certainly think is the case is that 
people um, and Dan Kahan's work has has an, has had. He's a researcher at Yale, as you mentioned him before, has, you know, indeed worked on this sort of thing. And, and it is the case that I think that people who are highly, uh, I mean, at least this, his, his, I don't know if it's is the case, but it's certainly his uh, research is highly supportive of the idea that the more education you have uh, on particular con- matters of conviction, not on anything. The more education you have in general can make you on matters that are not connected with your identity, um, that are sort of straightforward tasks that are not connected to what you consider to be your political identity. Uh, You can still, you know, education obviously helps. Um, One would hope so. Again, pilots, surgeons, the like. But when those same pilots and surgeons and professors and so forth uh, turn to matters of conviction, these matters that reflect our identity, their, their education actually only helps them dig in deeper, dig in. So people who deny climate change, for example, who are highly educated, uh, according to Kahan, do tend to um, uh, be um, – you know, that people are – and specifically people who are not just educated but highly mathematically literate and highly scientifically literate, that literacy does not uh, mitigate their uh, climate change denial. In fact, it only makes it deeper because they have a, a better ability to pick apart uh, uh, scientific studies. The same is true on the left, Kahan shows. And I think – and that is exactly – you're right. What I'm trying to signal in, in, the, in this chapter is that the left is fooling itself. We, I, I, as a member of the left, of the progressive left and a vocal member, I'm fooling myself if I tell myself that the mere fact that I am a – uh, you know, I'm a college professor and therefore I must be objective and rational because of that fact that, you know, you know, people don't say that out loud, but <laughs> often our conversations, uh, with each other do reflect that assumption. And that's an assumption we need to, we really need to be careful of because it's just not the case that, um, uh, being, uh, reading a lot of Kant, uh, is necessarily going to make you immune to the problems of a conviction and identity. You tell a story in that chapter about liberalism and identity politics. I think it's so interesting. You talk about the sort of standpoint epistemology, like, hey, where you stand matters. And you have this great quote from Locke where, hey, just, you know, the person that's eaten a pineapple is now in the standpoint of knowing what it tastes like over one that doesn't. And you talk about how that has a real legitimacy in political discussion because you never, I mean, this is, uh, this is Jonathan Rawls, right? The, the, the theory, you know, the behind the veil, like, Hey, you should vote for policies where you don't know whether you're the rich or the poor, gay or straight. And and you vote for the policy. If you don't know how it's going to affect you, right? right? The veil of ignorance. And you say that like the, that legitimate idea got into sort of my standpoint is the truth and all this kinds of, of relativism where there's no truth, but my truth, which again, fuels the intellectual arrogance but then what's interesting is you talk about how people on the right like scruton or david brooks or people on the left like judith butler or richard rorty pointed this out to liberals but now liberals are shocked when conservatives do it right like well that's our turn a turn effects the people that you know the 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 liz cheney's river that, that wrote the books about and about postmodern relativism and all this you know a couple decades ago now they're the champions of the relativism, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. so now liberals are like, wait, let's go back to facts. It, it's sort of like, you know, be careful yeah. what you wish for, right? Indeed. Uh, I mean, 
just to just to clarify, I think that the the um, the feminist philosophers like Helen Longino that and others that um, championed and continue and you know contemporary feminists like Alessandra Tanazzini and others who champion rightly standpoint epistemology, which I think is good epistemology. Uh, themselves early on were not postmodernists. Uh, they did not think that, um, you know, what was true or known was relative to a standpoint. Rather, they were advocating, as you pointed out, the very sensible empiricist idea. And they thought of it as empiricist that, you know, um, where, where you stand often gives you better access to independent reality, uh, which is, you know, uh, no surprise really once you think about it. It's a, like a lot of important philosophical truths. Uh, it seems obvious once you state it that, you know, your, your experience and your perspective on life, where you come from, you know, what sort of social conditions you, you live in and so forth are going to give you a window into the facts that other people might who don't have those, that background, uh, Aren't you know? Aren't going to be able to look through, so that's no surprise. But as you said, what off, what has happened is that people, uh, various thinkers, started to equate that thought. Not the not these the originators of the thought, but various other thinkers began to start to think. Well, really, um, what we need to say is that standpoints determine truth. Standpoints determine. Uh, knowledge and that idea, which wasn't in, in fact championed by thinkers on the left uh, in uh, the you know the seventies, eighties, and early nineties, that idea is is an idea that I think is antithetical not only to, to real standpoint epistemology, uh, but to the idea that truth is independent of power. And indeed, you know, I mean, you, you get to the point where Foucault, who is a philosopher, I think, had lots of important things to say to us, lots of things to teach us, unfortunately also tended to equate truth with power. And that that's a giddying thought. I mean, I think it's a sort of, we're seeing that now, as you just pointed out on the right. And it, the deep irony is that, in a, in a way, we on the left, uh, some of us, who people who advocated uh, this equation of truth with power, uh, are have are laid the seeds for this, the 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 use of that idea to defend um, dogmatic and authoritarian uh, policies. Because, as you say, right, right now, right now, the the right and Intellectuals on the right, particularly in the white nationalist movement, are uh, – you can actually – I mean, uh, your readers can, if they have the courage, go – if you, you want to go on some of the white nationalist chat sites, you will see discussions of, of philosophy, often dark and distorted discussions, but you will also see sometimes people advocating the idea that – uh, well, yeah, you know, truth is what we make of it. And fa- alternative facts, uh, are as good as other sorts of facts because at the end of the day, history goes to the, the victors and we want to be the victors. So full speed ahead, let us roll over them with our tanks and make it so. You have this conclusion in the book, which you, you're pleading, you make a plea for an intellectual kind of humility and a practice that's, that, you know, that's animated by that. You know, there's a book I love. It's called Proper Confidence. Written by a guy named Leslie Newbigin. I think he was like his 80s when he wrote it. Uh, it's written like in the late 90s. And he has the book structure so simple. The first chapter is Faith is the Way to Knowledge. And he says, like, this is whether it's religious or just academic, you go in as a sophomore to chemistry, you can't say, I'm not going to look at the 
experiments in the book until I do them all myself. You have to trust the authorities to some degree. The second chapter is doubt is the way of the truth, right? That, that you have to also sort out bad knowledge or skewed knowledge. And, and then the third chapter is certainty is the way to nihilism. And like if the, the, the desire for certainty is sort of a false, it's a red herring that, that you have to have this, this precarious journey between faith and doubt, you know, wh- whether you're religious, or religious, that you're always sort of sorting stuff out. And, and that kind of, that careful balance, you, you sort of simplify it by saying, you just got to understand, just because it's true doesn't mean I believe it. And just because I believe it doesn't mean it's true. And that's, I mean, that can be an insecure feeling, right? I mean, the, 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 yes. the, the, the appeal of certainty, right? Because it forms the identity, expands the self. But that is the kind of virtues you're, you're commend, commending to us. They're allergic to that sort of simple certainty, right? They are. And, and, and here is, you know, I think the very much the existential question that all of us, uh, face when we're struggling to be reflective and human beings, which is that, um, you know, certainty is always going to be outside of our grasp as human beings. I mean, at least for the most part, uh, the things that are certain are not the things we often want to be certain. <laughs> they're, they're not the things that we are looking to bet our life on. They might be the simple equations of mathematics or logic, for example. But, you know, that, that certainty, that quest for certainty, as Dewey called it, um, the, the desire for it, uh, once, once it starts to take over, uh, can, uh, steer us away, actually, from what's true and what's real and what's important in life. And so what we have to do is sort of balance the realization that just because we believe something doesn't make it true, uh, as you said, and it's because it's true, we may not believe it. We may not ever get to it. It may remain always hidden from us. Uh, we have to balance that fact. Uh, that, that precariousness, uh, with the courage to continue to be Socratic, to continue to talk and dialogue and to be open-minded to the evidence that comes down, even if it, you know, uh, ends up contradicting what we already, uh, held so close near and dear to our, uh, worldview. So I think that precariousness is, is just something that we have to live with. Uh, and I think it's better to try to embrace it and to find institutions of practices, as I said, reflective practices that can encourage it in us and in our institutions than to try to push it aside and follow the person who tells you, you know, I alone can fix it. And, and that whole, they used a very interesting phrase, that certainty that wants to grasp the truth. I mean, isn't in any discipline, whether it's when we figure out we're, we're trying to work on a math equation and we don't understand it, finally we get it, or we understand in an advanced biology class how, wow, this is an organic system, or we see something philosophically, we finally get it. Isn't it the feeling much more like we're grasped by the truth than we grasp it? I mean, <laughs> like when we're in those beautiful moments where we see the truth as something bigger than ourselves, it's the opposite of the feeling of certainty grasping it. Like we're, we are grasped. And that's part of the beauty of the adventure of inquiry, right? Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a good point. I think that's certainly the case in in all sorts of kinds of inquiry. That you know, one of the things that uh, you know that's partly to do just with the nature of how we form belu- beliefs. Um, you know, belief isn't under our voluntary control when we come to. Have 
when, when I can't just right now start believing that I have a blue flower growing out of the top of my head. Uh, I can imagine it, but I can't actually come to think it's true. Um, that's what I mean in this context by belief. I can't just decide that it's true. That is, I can't do that, at least if I'm uh, operating normally and, and healthfully. Um, it's got to be, as it were, something that, as you said, sweeps over me that uh, such and such is the case. And we feel that way. That's, as you said, the most um, um, obvious example of that is when we're doing a proof in mathematics. But it's also the case when we, in our human relations, where we come to realize that this person feels this way towards us or doesn't feel this way, or we come to understand that uh, this political group really is advocating this and nasty, poli- terribly inhuman policy. And we it settles into our bones, that dark realization that that's the case. So, you know, I think that sense of... Um, Discovery uh, is something that uh, is in, is an important phenomenological feature of our relationships to uh, truth and fact. Well, that ad- attitude and and posture towards discovery is uh, on every page of Know It All Society. It's a great book, Michael. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Michael for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Know It All Society. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.